after James's beautiful talk last night about watering the seeds of goodness, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, and your afternoon of, of some mudita, we are going to continue the theme. And I'd like to talk tonight about gratitude. Gratitude and some about generosity. It's this... Uh, really powerful practice to be recognizing and connecting with the gifts in our lives, the, the blessings in our lives. And gratitude is something that uh, it's natural. We all know how it is to feel grateful. This is something that's just part of our capacity as human beings. And to kind of make gratitude work for us, to deepen the ways that the presence of gratitude can really can really nourish you here on long retreat and the ways that gratitude can help to keep the heart buoyant in the process of meeting suffering i was in the teacher's room a few minutes ago and i said should i start with a poem or a story and they said definitely start with a story and in the world of dharma teaching <laughs> a good story has a fair bit of value it's like currency. And so this story is from my, my dear friend, Bonnie. And um, I said, oh, how should I start this talk? And she says, you've got to tell the story of the tamale and the tire iron. And so I'm going to tell you the story of the tamale and the tire iron. It's not actually my story. It's the story written by a, um, a graphic designer who lives in Portland, Oregon, named, named Justin Horner. He says, during this past year, I've had three instances of car trouble. A blowout on a freeway, a bunch of blown fuses, and an out-of-gas situation. They all happened while I was driving other people's cars, which for some reason makes it even worse on an emotional level. And on a practical level as well, what with the fact that I carry things like a jack and extra fuses in my own car, and know enough not to park on a steep incline with less than a gallon of fuel. Each time when these things happened, I was disgusted with the way people didn't bother to help. I was stuck on the side of the freeway, hoping my friend's roadside service would show, just watching tow trucks cruise right past me. The people at the gas stations where I asked for gas for a gas can told me that they couldn't lend them out for safety reasons, but that I could buy a really crappy one-gallon can with no cap for 15 bucks. It was enough to make me say stuff like, this country's going to hell in a handbasket, which I actually said. But you know who came to my rescue all three times? Immigrants. Mexican immigrants. None of them spoke any English. One of those guys stopped to help me with the blowout, even though he had his whole family of four in tow. I was on the side of the road for close to three hours with my friend's big Jeep. I put signs in the windows, big signs that said in capital letters, need a jack, and I offered money. Nothing. Right as I was about to give up and start hitching, a van pulled over and the guy bounded out. He sized up the situation and called for his daughter who spoke English. He conveyed through her that he had a jack, but it was actually too small for the Jeep, so we would need to brace it. Then he got a saw from the van and cut a section out of a big log on the side of the road. 
We rolled it over, put his jack on top, and we were in business. I started taking the wheel off, and then, if you can believe it, I broke his tire iron. It was one of those collapsible ones, and I wasn't careful. I snapped the head clean off. Darn. No worries. He ran to the van and handed it to his wife. She was gone in a flash down the road to buy a new tire iron. She was back in 15 minutes. We finished the job with a little sweat and cussing. The log started to give, and I was a very happy man. The two of us were filthy and sweaty. His wife produced a large water jug for us to wash our hands in. I tried to put a 20 in the man's hand, and he wouldn't take it. So instead, I went up to the van and gave it to his wife as quietly as I could. I thanked them up one side and down the other. And I asked the little girl where they lived, thinking maybe I'd send them a gift for being so awesome. She said they lived in Mexico. They were going to Oregon so Mommy and Daddy could pick cherries for the next few weeks. Then they were going to pick peaches and then back home. After I said my goodbyes and started walking back to the Jeep, the girl called out and asked if I'd had lunch. When I told her no, she ran up and handed me a tamale. This family, undoubtedly poorer than just about everyone else on that stretch of highway, working on a seasonal basis where time is money, they took a couple of hours out of their day to help a strange guy on the side of the road while people in tow trucks were just passing by. But we weren't done quite yet. I thanked them again and walked back to my car and opened the foil on the tamale. I was starving by this point. And what did I find inside? My $20 bill. I whirled around and I ran back to the van and the guy rolled down his window. He saw the 20 in my hand and just started shaking his head no. All I could think to say was, por favor, por favor, por favor, with my hands out. And the guy just smiled and with what looked like great concentration, said in English, today you, tomorrow me. Then he rolled up his window and drove away with his daughter waving to me from the back. I sat in my car eating the best tamale I'd ever had, and I just started to cry. It had been a rough year, nothing had seemed to go my way, and this was so out of left field I just couldn't handle it. In the several months since then, I changed a couple of tires, given a few rides to gas stations, and once drove 50 miles out of my way to get a girl to an airport. I won't accept money, but every time I'm able to help, I feel as if I'm putting something in the bank. Isn't that a great story? Thanks, Bonnie. We all, we all probably have our own versions of stories like this where we have been the recipients of kindness in a certain way or where we've been inspired to be generous and uh, offer our kindness. And it, it feels actually so uh, good to be connected to the web of life in this way. And if your experience is anything like mine, those, those kinds of experiences might be something that you remember that end up being dear to your heart in some way. Gratitude and generosity have a whole lot to do with with happiness. If you consider a natural response to um, tuning into the good fortune of your own life, 
You know, when the mind is not in a contracted state, when the mind isn't clouded over, appreciation, mudita, gratitude, it becomes, um, becomes the natural response. So our capacity to feel gratitude has a lot to do with our capacity to be connected to what is beautiful in this life. To connect with qualities of, of nourishment, of just enoughness, like James talked about last night, just the contentment that comes from enoughness, which has more to do with our way of perceiving than it does with actually how things are externally. But it's, it's a practice. If we experience this kind of fundamental gratitude all the time, I wouldn't need to be talking about it. Really, gratitude is a, is a practice. This is from Mary Oliver, a poem called Philip's Birthday. I gave to a friend that I care for deeply something that I loved. It was only a small, extremely shapely bone that came from the ear of a whale. It hurt a little to give it away. The next morning I went outside as usual at sunrise and there in the harbor was a swan. I don't know what he or she was doing there, but the beauty of it was gift. Do you see what I mean? You give and you are given. So this relationship to the flow of life, given and being given, it's, uh, it's really as essential, I, I think, as, as breath. And if you think of the cycle of the breaths, the, the breathing that you've brought so, so many moments of attention to, there's an inhalation and there's an exhalation. You know, we don't just inhale. We receive the oxygen. We breathe out the carbon dioxide and um, connecting Connecting with this flow of giving and receiving is such a different way, really, of connecting with our lives than the, the, the way of um, relating to life as I've got to be sure I get what's mine and we'll see if you get what's yours. So the, the practice of um, tuning into the gifts in our life and the practice of sharing them, it really counters our, our tendency to hold ourselves as separate. Our tendency not to tell the truth, really, about how much we impact one another and how connected we, we really are. Now, taking a moment to tune into gratitude, it, it acknowledges the state of relationship. The state of relationship which is the, the truth of our lives. Even here on retreat, you know, you might be guarding your sense doors. You might be um, deeply in contact with your internal experience, but you know that the internal experience is impacted by what we consider to be external. You know how you feel when you're, when you're walking by somebody doing walking meditation and they just, they give you, they give you your space. 
You know how it feels to be supported, you know, supported by this community of practitioners, you know, headed, headed in, a, in the same direction. For me, gratitude has a lot to do, uh, sometimes it's really the conditions of, of my life or of a particular moment, but really gratitude for how it is to be, to be a human being. You know, this miracle, really. Wonder of this human experience where we, where we can be vulnerable, where we are impacted, we're impacted by, by life completely influenceable. So gratitude is really a way I experience um, love and metta. Why don't you go ahead and just bring to mind something that you are grateful for that you've, um, that's either happened or that you've experienced just in the last 24 hours since you were in the hall last night. Might be that gorgeous yellow daffodil by the dining hall in your experience of something, something in nature or uh, some interaction. As you bring to mind this, uh, this experience of something you're grateful for, just notice what happens if you hang out with it. You can keep your eyes open or closed, but just notice let yourself uh, see the image. Let yourself remember in the body. Notice the, the sense in your heart and belly centers. And as you do this, you might take a moment just to give thanks, just to acknowledge the other beings that were part of, of um, if there's, you know, who or what kind of helped this moment to happen. Take a moment to sense the relatedness You can open your eyes, or you can keep them closed if you want. This is something you can, you can do. You can either bring to mind, or in a moment, uh, James talks him about this, but in a moment of connecting with, oh, this is happening and I'm grateful for it, to really notice what's happening in the body. I know for me, in a moment of gratitude, my, my belly actually feels full like it does after a good meal. There's a sense of satisfaction and I feel a kind of a upward rising of energy in the body. And what I notice most in a moment of really feeling grateful is that I feel connected. I feel connected, even if that gratitude is for, you know, a moment where my mind's not going berserk. It's like, all oh, right, there's a sense of connecting with the experience. So gratitude helps us to really... Um, 
live, <laughs> live our lives as they are in relationship. I think that some of the first words that parents often teach children to, to say, mom, dad, please, thank you. So we're, we're taught to say thank you. But do you ever consider how many times the words thank you might come out of your mouth? Do you really know how to inhabit thank you? Do you know how it is to linger, to really hang out with the experience of, of, um, of thank you? And we have a whole holiday and we call Thanksgiving. It's, and there's a very complicated history there that I'm not getting, gonna get into now, but we have a whole holiday for Thanksgiving. But, but it's not often sometimes that we, that we pause to really um, inhabit thank you. The poet, Alison Luderman, uh, this is from the book Bread, Body, and Spirit, Finding the Sacred in Food, because, you know, um, deepening gratitude means slowing down enough to appreciate, enough to connect and make contact. And this is from this wonderful poet. Yeah, I love Alison Luderman's work, and she, she'd probably eaten a whole lot of strawberries in her life by the time that she had this insight and wrote these words. She says, strawberries were too delicate to be picked by machine. The perfectly ripe ones bruised at even too heavy of a human touch. It hit me then that every strawberry I had ever eaten, every piece of fruit, had been picked by calloused human hands. Every piece of toast with jelly represented someone's knees, someone's back and hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat. Why had no one told me about this before? It was just like that, just beginning to see all the, um, all the different pieces at work in our lives. So, you know, in the process of going even to, to make a cup of tea, you know, it's how often you're mindful of the walking, right? Going to get the tea, maybe you're having a cup of chamomile tea, and just to reflect on all that goes into a cup of tea that you have on retreat, if you think about it. You know, there's somebody that put in the, that hot water machine and somebody from Spirit Rock that ordered that and somehow the money in the budget was there for that to be put in. And the chamomile grew with water, with sunshine. The chamomile was harvested in some way. I don't know if chamomile is harvested by hand or with a machine and, and it was probably dried. And somehow um, a certain amount was put into each tea bag that was sealed and the chamomile got here, I don't know if the chamomile got here on a truck or on an airplane or maybe on a barge, could be from Germany or something like that. And then you get to decide if you want to have soy milk or cow's milk or nothing in it. And it's just like just a cup of chamomile tea. When you really look, look at all the relationship that's at work, there's a, there's a sense of um, all the ways that life is supporting us here doing this work and beyond. The Buddha said there are two people. He said these, these two people are hard to find in the world. Which two? The one who is first to do a kindness and the one who is grateful 
and thankful for a kindness done. So metta and gratitude really, really go together. And uh, these rare being to, to do something kind and a rare being to, to really be, to be thankful. If you think of the happiest people you know, I mean, people who aren't just, you know, happy because they have, are having everything go their way, but people who really have a deeper kind of happiness that, that, that is there as life has its ups and downs. If you think of the happiest people you know, you know, gratitude is probably part of their experience. The, the happiest people I know are happy because they're really um, engaged with life. They're really receiving life and participating, participating in life, tasting this life fully. Ajahn Sumedho says that our practice is not to open our hearts. Our practice is to train our hearts. To train our hearts. So all of the training we're doing here, the training of the heart in Vipassana and Brahmavihara practice, we're training the hearts in the, in the direction of responsiveness, the direction of feeling with, the direction of, um, of empathy, of, of presence. And these are like cohesive forces, gratitude, generosity, forces that um, acknowledge, I keep saying it over and over again, but acknowledge that we live in relationship. This is so supportive for the kind of isolation that, uh, that, we, know, that we know that each of us can feel. The Buddha taught um, that gratitude is one of the highest protections against negativity in the mind, one of the highest protections and I, I wonder if, um, if this is a protection because in a moment of gratitude, we're actually not feeding our tendency to be dissatisfied. Have you noticed your tendency to be dissatisfied? Hopefully you've become very intimate, very close with this deep tendency that goes on, that goes on. And, uh, it's, it's infinite sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> you know, here we have everything we actually need. You've got everything you really need here. You might not have everything you want. I'm sure you don't have everything you want. But you have everything you need. And, and you, uh, you know, five weeks ago, you probably were really getting ready to be here, wanting to be here. Maybe you still do. But we can see the glass. We can see the glass is half full. We can see the glass is half empty. You know, why not see the glass is half full? Because in, in a sense, as long as greed is in the mind, it'll always be half empty. You know, because greed is this, this um, incredible potential for dissatisfaction. So, I want to talk a little bit about to know, to know gratitude, often to develop any inequality, it's really helpful to know what are the obstacles, what, what keeps, keeps these qualities from, from flowering into their fullness. And 
one, uh, one obstacle to developing gratitude is, is a attachment to being self-reliant. Self-reliance is great. We need to be self-reliant, but when self-reliance becomes an identity, you know, when self-reliance becomes an identity, we know we can take care of ourselves no matter what. And so it can be very threatening to, to receive or to be given to be given to. I mentioned in my last talk or a few talks ago that I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, and you know, I joke that, that the religion is like self-reliance. I mean, the um, the way that self-reliance in the Midwest, where I'm from at least, one head is nodding, the other person from Fargo, um, <laughs> is um, is held is just this the sense of um, it's like, you know, Lake Wobegon, the, the, <laughs> the women are strong, the men are good looking, and the children are above average. But it's really this sense of um, so much generosity that people are so nice, so generous, not afraid to really help and do anything. But they have a much harder time with receiving help because receiving support can be like a, um, almost like a, a sense of being needy somehow. That's the way it can be perceived. And when there's a lot of attachment to self-reliance, there's this duality set up. It's, not, it's different from like the flow of breath, the flow of giving and receiving. There's more a solid giver and a solid receiver. And there may or may not really be that kind of connectivity. I, I had a opportunity to really work with this in myself um, a few years ago. This is a number of years ago now, but my, my boyfriend at the time and I, we were living together and we, we were breaking up. We were going our separate ways and we decided that he was going to stay in the house we'd lived in and I was going to move out. And it was a time in my life when I was doing a lot of, a lot of practice, a lot of travel and training and teaching and I wasn't home very much and so I just wanted a very simple place to live. I thought you know, just a room somewhere would be fine. And I sent out an email to everybody I knew. And I said, you know, I'm looking for basically just a room. I just want, you know, a small place to cook and a bathroom. And a few weeks later, one of my friends got back to me and she said, Erin, my condo's open. You can, you can stay in my condo. And she said, why don't you um, come meet me? You know, can you be here in 10 minutes? And I said, I said, sure. And I said, what's the rent? And she said, well, you can talk about, we'll talk about that later. And so I went over there. It was just three blocks from where I'd been living. And I went and I knocked on the front door and she opened the door and she said, I'd love to have you here, Erin. You know, why don't you just stay here? And we started walking, walking in and it's this long hallway and it just kept going with all these doors. And it turned out that this condo was this beautiful three bedroom, three bathroom home um, right on the river. It was way fancier than anywhere I'd ever lived and she said, um, you know, I know all that you're doing in terms of your Dharma service, and this is a way I can, I can offer you support. It's really no trouble. And she said, just, just pay me whatever you can. Just pay me whatever seems right for you for rent every month. And um, I, I moved in there, and I got to like it very, very much. It was <laughs> really a lovely place to be. It was really lovely how this had been given to me. Not only was it just luxurious, it was just... Uh, being in this womb of generosity. But what was happening for me is that every time I ran into my friend who had offered this to me and something came up about the condo, 
I would notice myself either thanking her profusely, just saying, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so grateful and you know, just going off and off and not being very connected with her, but just pouring it out. Or if something came up about the condo, I would immediately change the topic so we didn't have to talk about the condo. And uh, I just became aware that I was doing this. It was really hard for me to sit with her and be in my body and just say the two words that needed to be said. Thank you. <laughs> Not to say it a hundred times. And, um, and I started practicing when I was home just how it was to be relaxing into the blessing of this home to be relaxing into receiving and recognizing that, yeah, I could live somewhere else and be the self-reliant woman from North Dakota, but I was so much happier receiving this generosity and knowing that as I was going to different places, practicing and teaching, her um, offering was such a huge part of what helped me to do that. And so I got to this place where I could just sit across from her, and as something came up about the condo, we could talk about it. And I could say thank you. And there was this connection between us. Um, she felt more satisfied. We talked about it later with some laughter. She felt more satisfied. And I felt um, happier, more relaxed, taking in this um, blessing in my life. So the stronger, the stronger really our defense against receiving, the more that there will be this sense of separation um, in the flow of gratitude and generosity between, between ourselves and others. Because we don't, we don't earn everything. You know, we don't uh, earn all of the good fortune in our lives. from Ajahn Buddha Dasa. We're giving back to nature the things that we have falsely appropriated from it. This mind, these feelings, this body, the breath itself. They don't really belong to us. When we see that, instead of feeling deprived of something we thought was ours, we find a great freedom. This is the liberation the Buddha promised. So how does it impact your sense of self when you experience life flowing through you versus possessing any one thing? Now I don't live in that condo anymore, but I'm so glad that that flowed through me, flowed through my life. A second, um, another way of uh, another obstacle to really really developing gratitude is our, own, is our own sense of entitlement. When, when we're entitled, nothing's a gift, is it? And we feel that we should, have, we should have whatever it is. We deserve whatever it is. We expect it. This can be really a... Um, I don't know, it can be a shadowy thing to, to see in ourselves, our own entitlement, because the, the presence of entitlement can disturb the image, you know, the image of being 
a good, generous practitioner with lots of parami. I I don't have entitlement. No, no, thank you very much. But it's really, really valuable. It's important to see the places where entitlement is at work. In fact, the more that you see clearly and unpack where entitlement is at work for you, the, the freer you will be. So rather than entitlement being something that we should be ridding ourselves of, it's really something to make more and more conscious, to welcome, to include, to be, uh, to be aware of. So on the retreat, you know, entitlement, just to notice where, where do you get entitled on retreat? It's not just out of retreat to, you know, um, you might feel entitlement around being able to take a shower when you want to. That would be natural. You could feel entitlement around having more time with teachers. Could be entitlement around, um, you know, more or less instruction. There's all sorts of things. So just to notice like, oh, where is that place where it's not just I want this, but I deserve this. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're so, it's so quiet in here tonight. I'm like, are you, are you there? I think you are. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. So entitlement is something that uh, we absorb. You know, we absorb. It's not just uh, my entitlement. It's a culturally entitlement is kind of rewarded in a lot of ways. You know, McDonald's slogan, this restaurant that's made probably about billions of dollars, it's not just do something good for yourself. You, know, you deserve a break today. It's a little different. Mercedes-Benz used to have a slogan, you owe it to yourself to buy a Mercedes-Benz. Really? Unbelievable. And so there, we are bombarded with this message that we are such fantastic, amazing people that we deserve this fantastic, amazing material way of living and there's such a cost to it. One way to um, consider, consider, I came across this quote by, you know, Brene Brown. She does some TED Talks on shame and vulnerability. She's, uh, I really like what she has to offer. It's really good stuff. And one way to consider this is what, what she says, which is, um, she says, what separates privilege from entitlement is gratitude. I've just kind of been trying this on for myself. I actually think it's more than, a lot more than gratitude. I think it also has a lot to do with, with awareness. But um, I've talked about this a little bit in the hall. These days I, I hear the word privilege and I, you know, what comes to mind is, is my own white privilege and um, this area that is just so, continues to be such an area of development and awakening and learning and growth for me. And um, it's more than privilege. It has actually has to do with rights, I think, and often how people of color are not always afforded the same level of, of rights, not just privilege, but even, even rights. And um, as we wake up to our own entitlement, and our own privilege, it's uh, important to see what's been given and to see what's not being given, to really see, to see both. I um, read some time ago this great piece of work by Robin DiAngelo. Some of you might, might know her work, and she has this great article 
entitled Why It's So Hard to Talk to White People About Racism. A lot of really good, um, good stuff in it. And I wanted to share with you just a little snippet uh, from her article about entitlement. She's talking about entitlement to racial comfort. And she's really speaking to white people, white people like me being comfortable in, in their, um, in the way they've gotten used to kind of holding, holding themselves and their identity. And she says, in the dominant position, whites are almost always racially comfortable and thus have developed unchallenged expectations to remain so. We've not had to build tolerance for racial discomfort, and thus when racial discomfort arises, whites typically respond as if something is wrong and blame the person or event that triggered the discomfort, usually a person of color. This blame results in a socially sanctioned array of responses toward the perceived source of the discomfort, usually a person of color, including penalization, retaliation, isolation, and refusal to continue engagement. Since racism is necessarily uncomfortable in that it is oppressive, white insistence on racial comfort guarantees racism will not be faced except in the most superficial of ways. You see how, how deep some of the entitlement goes in terms of um, you know, how whole governments, organizations are, are run. And awareness, awareness in this domain is really, really essential if we want to live in a world that um, collectively reflects the heart of what we're really doing here the way that we're really developing here. Because when, we're, when we think we're automatically entitled, especially when it's unconscious, which a lot of entitlement is, that's when we begin to be willing to really walk, walk all over other people to get what we think we deserve. So just beginning to gently, you know, wake up to entitlement, um, is so important for the development of our relationships, the development of, of gratitude, and really the development of a of beloved community, a truly inclusive community. I'm going to share a story from this book. I shared something from this in the um, Brahma Viharas last week, I think, but you weren't all in the room, so I'll say this is a book called Tattoos on the Heart by Father Gregory Boyle. He's a Jesuit priest. I really appreciates so much his work, his writing, his view on things. And he founded this, this really killer organization out of L.A., Homeboy Industries, that's designed to get gang people, um, basically to offer people who have been involved with gangs, and which also often means prison, and generally usually means violence and some tough, tough history, really tough history, to get them um, off and off the streets and in better lives. And Homeboy Industries, they have all these different things going on, but they're best known for their bakery, where um, people from rival gangs actually work together. It's really amazing what they offer. And um, he shares a story about one of the churches that he worked at, and this is a um, church called the Dolores Mission Church. And in 1987, this church declared itself a sanctuary for the undocumented um, after passage of the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And after the church declared itself to be a sanctuary, 
all of these undocumented um, men from Mexico and Central America started sleeping in the church overnight because the church opened its doors and the women and children slept in the, in the convent. And so you just have to imagine a, a Catholic church being filled with homeless, homeless men at night. And he says, once the homeless began to sleep in the church at night, there was always the faintest evidence they had. Come Sunday morning, we'd foo-foo the place as best as we could. We'd sprinkle I love my carpet on the rugs and vacuum like crazy. We strategically placed potpourri and airwick around the church to combat this lingering, pervasive reminder that nearly 50 and later up to 100 men had spent the night there. About the only time we used incense at Dolores Mission was on Sunday morning before the 7.30 a.m. mass crowd would arrive. Still, try as we might, the smell remained. The grumbling set in and people spoke about churching elsewhere. So the Jesuits figured that if we can't fix it, then we'll feature it. So we determined to address the discontent in our sermons one Sunday. I began with, what's the church smell like? People were mortified. Eye contact ceases. Women are searching inside their purses for they know not what. (laughs) Come on now, I throw back at them. What's the church smell like? Huele a patas, smells like feet. Don Rafael booms out. He was old and he never cared what people thought. Excellent. But why does it smell like feet? Because many homeless men slept here last night, says a woman. Well, why do we let that happen here? Es nuestro compromiso. It's what we've committed to do, said another. Well, why would anyone commit to that? Porque es lo que haría Jesús. It's what Jesus would do. Well, then what's the church smell like now? A man stands and bellows. Huele a nuestro compromiso. It smells like commitment. The place cheers. Guadalupe waves her arm wildly. Huele a rosas. Smells like roses. The packed church roars with laughter and a newfound kinship that embraced someone else's odor as their own. The stink in the church hadn't changed, only how the folks saw it. The people at Dolores Mission had come to embody Wendell Berry's injunction. You have to be able to imagine lives that aren't yours. It's just so beautiful. The people, um, the members of that church somehow knew the, um, the blessings that they had and the, the good fortune and uh, the real difference that, that generosity, that sharing would make. And it brought them happiness, even though they didn't like the smell at first. So, um, pardon me, I'm just figuring out this mic. It moved a little bit. It's easy to talk about gratitude when everything's hunky-dory, when things are going well and we are, you know, happy in our lives. That's easy to connect with gratitude. But what about gratitude when, when things are really, really rough? What about the relationship to gratitude if, if you're dealing with a serious illness? If you're dealing with loss, you're dealing with some sort of suffering that's just very front and central and real in your life. 
sometimes I, I hear a fear that bringing in gratitude is a kind of, you know, papering over or a kind of bypass, as if we're supposed to only tend to the suffering. Gratitude is some sort of um, um, some sort of avoiding. But in my experience, connecting with gratitude when life is difficult, that's actually, I think, perhaps the most important, valuable time to connect with gratitude because it gives us a larger view. You know how it is when something's difficult, that can really capture the attention. It can color kind of what we're seeing globally, globally in our lives. And so just taking a moment to connect with, there's always something to be grateful for. There's really always something to be grateful for. And, and um, you know, this kind of path, this, this path we're on, it's not about getting free from positive thinking or positive affirmations, but it's really this... Um, Connecting with a gratitude, it, as I said earlier, it, there's a nourishment. It quiets the mind. And it's often when things are most difficult, actually, that, that gratitude emerges spontaneously. Maybe you've seen this in your own experience. I know when I, um, I spoke quite a bit about my experience being with my mother in her dying process, it was a time that was uh, just exquisitely painful for me. Definitely the most painful um, time of my adult life. Just um, emotionally, not just in the loss, but in the, all the conditions around the loss, the depth of my own attachment to how I wanted things to go and the, the um, intensity of the spectrum of emotion that happened on a very regular day, uh, not on, on a regular basis every day for me in that experience. And, and while this was a time of such incredible difficulty for me, it was perhaps the most um, rewarding or purposeful experience also of my adult life. I, I know that I haven't received a teaching greater than being with my mother intimately in her final, um, in the final month of her life. And something that was so alive for me, really every day as this journey was going on was, was gratitude. And it wasn't a sense of, oh, your mom's dying, find something to be happy about. It wasn't a sense of um, put on a, you know, put on a happy face. But there was really the sense of, um, the loss of her and the pain of that highlighted to me, you know, the incredible blessing of her presence in my life. Maybe you've had this experience, those of you who have lost parents and, um, you know, probably everyone in this room has had the experience of death of someone that they have cared for. It's like interesting when people die so often is when we really touch into all the ways that we have benefited from their presence. And it doesn't have to, of course, we don't have to wait to do that until someone isn't with us anymore in that way. But in this difficulty, I found myself, um, my sister and I, <laughs> we had taken quite a bit of space away from each other for some years. It was, it, that was hard for me. And so suddenly we find ourselves being together in the house we grew up in, you know, around mom, navigating our relationship with one another. 
And we were just so grateful to have one another and go through this experience together. You know, my sister and I talk uh, a whole lot now. She's very, very dear to me. And we were grateful for things like the food. Not just a little bit, but just we would sit down, Anna and I would sit down every night and eat dinner to nourish ourselves, and people brought us food. I've talked about the food in Fargo, but there was also some really good food. And um, it's just a sense of sitting down over a meal for me and enjoying the experience of having a sister to do that with. You know, it's just... um, The, I think what I was grateful for above above all else was my Dharma practice. I, I kept, um, this phrase kept coming to me, the mercy of this understanding. And mercy isn't a word that I use very much. I, 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 uh, I associate it more with actually a, the Christian faith, but there was a, just the mercy of this understanding. And I, I just was seeing how deeply my Dharma practice and the understanding that develops from Dharma practice was a kind of um, deep easing, holding uh, care in a situation that without the Dharma practice that I have, I, I just, I can't imagine how much more I would have suffered. I actually don't know what I would have done. But there's such mercy in the understanding that we're developing here. And uh, I have such gratitude for how that understanding impacts every moment of my life, every moment of your lives too. So when we, when we, uh, people kept saying, oh, it's so tragic that Chris died. And I thought, you know, it was hard. I wish she hadn't, but it wasn't, there was nothing tragic to me about the situation. My mom had a good life and I, I thought it would have been tragic if she'd been in a Alzheimer's unit for 20 years. You know, that's really what she wouldn't have wanted. But um, when we are really in touch with these five recollections that I talked about, you know, knowing that um, death is certain, the time of death is uncertain, but death is certain, knowing that we are of the nature to grow old and get sick and part with what we love, you know, knowing that um, we are the heirs of our own actions, knowing the teaching of karma, you know, when we're in touch with these recollections, you might just, you know, ask yourself just what, what really matters the most. You know, spiritual practice is so important. <laughs> Living in this, in this world where um, life is so, the ups, the ups and downs are guaranteed, but the, we, just, we just never really know anything could happen at any time. You know, this practice gives us such a deep way to, to navigate The, the gratitude hut. Have you, some of you been to the gratitude hut? A little hut on the left. Um, well, it's on the right if you come from the retreat center. The katanyuta is the Pali word for gratitude. It actually means literally to have a sense of what was done. So as we sit here, we might carry with us having a sense of what was done in terms of all the beings that have made it possible for us to be here. I... I know when I've been on retreat here and it's been, it's been hard for me. I remember my first retreat, I would go down to the gratitude hut almost daily because I had so much doubt and I thought, I don't know if I can do this. And there was just something for me about standing inside that hut 
and seeing the faces of these great, great beings, Mahagosananda and the Dalai Lama, each trying, one trying to bow lower than the other. You know, the, the, the emptiness and radiance of Deepama. You know, the, the inspiration of a woman like Tenzin Palmo these teachers and founders in their earlier days on the backs of elephants and in robes. You know, and every time there's just some deep heart connection of, oh, that's right. You know, these people um, gave their lives and had faith and really did the practice, and I can too. And I would just kind of borrow, really, their confidence when I didn't have that for myself yet. And I love that we have a hut. We have a hut, um, to honor, really, our lineage, to honor some of the countless beings who have made it possible for each of us to be sitting here today doing this practice. It's beautiful. So, um, I think I'm just going to end with another story. This flow of gratitude and generosity and, and uh, may you be aware, may you include in your mindfulness this, this flow. And um, you know, we're really, we're just sitting here in such a field of blessings. It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. This is a story from Naomi Nye called Gate A4. It's about a, a gate in the Albuquerque airport. And everybody in the story um, is on some level, you know, sharing their generosity and they're also um, being grateful. And so this story really illustrates the joy that comes when we let ourselves be just wildly and profoundly grateful for the blessings of our lives. Wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal, after learning my flight had been de- detained for four hours, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate A4 understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Naomi Nye is a Palestinian poet. Well, one pauses these days. Gate A4 was my own gate, and so I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. I stooped to put my arm around the woman, and I spoke to her haltingly. Shudoa, shuberu kabiti. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment the next day. I said, you're fine. You'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. We called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and I would ride next to her on Southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for fun. (laughs) Then we called my dad and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out of course they had 10 shared friends. Then I thought just for the heck of it, Why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? (laughs) 
This all took up about two hours and she was laughing a lot by then, telling me about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She'd pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbling mounds stuffed with dates and nuts, out of her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There is no better cookie. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers and two little girls from our flight ran around serving us all apple juice and they were covered with powdered sugar too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition. Always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and I thought, this is the world I want to live in. The shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. I'll just sit for for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.